is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we love to tell every kind of story here from art to sports to business and, of course, history. And we do it this day in history every day, and we love books. And we've done David McCullough and the Wright Brothers, and we've done that great, great book about Mark Twain's last and epic tour in his life to well, get some money back because he'd been broke from so many adventures and misadventures in the stock market and in business. And a book review caught our attention in the Wall Street Journal, and the title was The Franklin House Divided. And here's how it started. On the 4th of July, 1776, Benjamin Franklin was in Philadelphia, having helped to draft the Declaration of Independence while his son, the governor of New Jersey, was under arrest in Connecticut having been branded an enemy of his country for persisting in his royal duties and opposing the revolution. In less than a year, William Franklin would be taken to the notorious Litchfield Gowl, a destination for, among others, traitors who had abused their privileges in lighter incarceration. And that led us to the guest that joins us now. The book review was for The Loyal Son, The War in Ben Franklin's House, and Daniel Mark Epstein joins us now. Thanks for joining us, Daniel. It's a pleasure to be with you. And Daniel, tell us, what drew you to this book? Well, I was always interested in Benjamin Franklin from the time I was a kid, you know, as being one of the most versatile Americans, a man who was a great inventor, uh, and probably the, the, the first great scientist in terms of uh, electricity. And, of course, everybody knows the story about Ben flying the kite. And I remember seeing the woodcut of, uh, of Benjamin Franklin flying the kite with his little boy, and I wondered what would it be like to have Benjamin Franklin as a father? I mean, a man who was not only a great inventor, but um, created the militia in Pennsylvania in order to defend the frontier against the Indians, and then you know created the first postal system in Pennsylvania and the University of Pennsylvania, and then, of course, became uh, one of the greatest American patriots during the Revolution. What would it be like to be that man's son? Uh, and then, of course, I found out that um, Benjamin Franklin's only son was um, illegitimate, a bastard. But that uh, he was raised just as if he had been a legitimate son. And the two of them were partners in politics and in military affairs and uh, later in diplomacy. Um, so it was an extraordinary father-son relationship, and the fact that they went different ways during the Revolution, and that William Franklin um, became the governor, the royal governor of New Jersey, while his father, of course, was the greatest patriot, uh, drove them apart. And I thought, what a tragedy, and what a great story. So I actually wrote a poem about this in the 1990s. And do you have that poem? Do I have it with me right now? Yeah. <laughs> no, no. I mean, it's, it was published long ago. And as often happens, because I, I was a, a poet before I became a biographer, several of my uh, poems have been transformed into these larger and more complete biographies. And well, a good case of that. And that's how it really stuck with you. I mean, it went from poetry to, to, uh, to nonfiction. And in the end, poetry is, is storytelling as well. And, uh, and that's what you're doing here. Talk to the, the listeners, because a lot of people don't know this about American history. 
This was no duck walk for ordinary Americans. It split families. It split fathers and sons. Some people were with the revolutionaries and the, and the patriots. Some were with the, with, the, with the crown. And some were just hiding under the table, hoping it would pass. How did this basically split up, particularly in the area where Franklin lived in Pennsylvania? Of course, the numbers changed. But at the beginning, uh, the majority of the people were against the revolution. And in fact... Uh, Benjamin Franklin and his son, in their works of diplomacy um, in England, tried to prevent the revolution. It was only after the British beca- uh, government became more and more oppressive and they sent troops to Boston um, that Benjamin Franklin finally became a patriot fairly late in the game, around 1775. Uh, so they both resisted the revolution. As far as the numbers are concerned, by 1776, um, I would say a third of the American people were for the revolution, a third were against it, and the other third were just trying to blow with the wind and try to, you know, try to um, try to keep out of trouble. And talk about now, uh, just briefly, we'll we'll open up the open up the lid on the next segment about this father son conflict, but. Were there, were there battles out in the streets? Was this quiet? Was this simmering? What was the what was the climate like for folks day to day? Obviously, Franklin had a, had something to do with newspapers as well. Talk about what it felt like then, because today all we hear about is my goodness, the climate today in America—it's just so hard. But my goodness, we have seen much tougher times in this country. Well, um, just as an example, um, during the the passing of the Stamp Act. Uh, there were riots in the streets in uh, in Boston and Philadelphia, and by 1775, um, there was really open warfare in the streets of many cities um, over the um, over the tax, uh, the ver- various tax collectors, people protecting them, people attacking them, and uh, by 1776, there were these provincial uh, committees of safety who would um, actually hold individuals uh, accountable if they said anything that uh, that seemed to be threatening to the um, movement for independence. And this was the point where Governor Franklin, you know, as the last royal governor of New Jersey, was defending, uh, defending the loyalists, the people who protected the crown. So it really was, uh, it was a revolution in, st- I mean, it was a uh, civil war in the streets of the major cities uh, all over all over America. Indeed, it was our first civil war. I mean, that's what I got from the book. I mean, we had one before we had one. This is Lee Habib, and this is Daniel Mark Epstein and his terrific book, The Loyal Son, The War in Ben Franklin's House. More after these messages.
This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we return with the author Daniel Mark Epstein and the book The Loyal Son, The War in Ben Franklin's House. Now, we had talked about briefly, Daniel, uh, what Ben Franklin was like and his remarkable contributions to this country. There were very few men with his biography, maybe no American with his biography. And let's talk about that son. You said he was a bastard child. Talk about his life and how he got from being Ben Franklin's son to the governor of a state. And there weren't that many states back then. Well, he was, um, William Franklin was an extraordinary young man in his own right. Uh, people talk about Ben Franklin as being precocious, as a businessman and a printer and a politician. Uh, but his son also was extraordinary. Um, his son wanted a military career, and so he went off and, and joined, uh, joined the King's Army at age 15. And by the time he was 18 years old, he was a captain, which was the highest rank you could attain in America without uh, paying for it. And um, at that point, he retired from the Army, and uh, his father got him a really good tutor, and he started studying law. And then he worked for his father um, in the um, legislature, in the Assembly of Pennsylvania, so he got this political career. And then when his father got the job to go off to England as the agent for the Assembly of Pennsylvania, representing the the assembly against the proprietors who refused to be taxed, his son went with him. And in England, his son rose very quickly. Uh, he went to the bar uh, and got his law, his law degree in his mid-20s, and shortly after that uh, was appointed to be the governor of New Jersey. So at that point in his life, he was in his late 20s. Uh, his father was... Uh, 50, in his mid-50s, he was even more powerful in the, uh, in the government than his father was. So he had an extraordinary career. And so let's get down to this conflict. I mean, by the time we get to the Stamp Act, as we had indicated before, um, the, the country was in pretty much open rebellion and a civil war was brewing. And William took a stand and Ben took a stand. And talk about uh, their final meeting in particular was remarkable. But before we get to that, build up to that if we can. Set up that, I, I think, almost just tragic scene between a father and son. Well, it's really extraordinary the extent to which the two men were living in different worlds. Because um, by 1775, two years before the actual uh, Declaration of Independence, uh, William had been living in America. He was the governor of New Jersey, and he'd been the governor of New Jersey for more than a decade uh, in trying to represent the king's interests in America and trying to prevent this revolution, which he knew would be a disaster. And a lot of people, even Benjamin Franklin up until 1775, felt it would be a big mistake for America to separate from the mother country. Meanwhile, his father is in England, and his father is still working on behalf of the colonies, representing the colonies' interests in, uh, in England uh, against Parliament. And he's seeing more and more corruption in, uh, in England, and uh, in the meantime, the, 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 the English government is sending troops to Boston and the rest of America in order to enforce these uh, taxation laws. And he's growing more and more bitter against the, uh, the English government, so that the two of them were living in different worlds. And when it finally came down to the uh, 1776 
and the Declaration of Independence. Uh, William was thoroughly on the side of the king and the crown, and his father at that point was a confirmed American patriot and revolutionary. So they just went different ways. Even before that, I think there was a certain amount of jealousy between father and son, as sometimes happens tragically. Um, And um, his dad, I think, was a, a little bit jealous of William. So let's talk next about this father and son. They're at loggerheads. What happens to William next as he takes his stand? The country is moving to war. It's clearly ready for war. William's not. Well, first of all, his father came home in time to try to talk his son over to the the side that he believed would be safest. Uh, That is the side of the revolutionaries. And the two had some very, very stormy confrontations um, in Pennsylvania and in New Jersey, uh, where where, uh, his father visited him, and he did everything he could to try to get him to come over to the side of the revolutionaries, because that was his side and the family's side, and William refused. And William uh, ended up being the um, the last royal governor to do the king's business in America, uh, stubbornly refused to leave the governor's mansion and had to be taken away bodily and was put into the worst prison in America, the Litchfield, Litchfield Jail, where he was in solitary confinement uh, with bread and water for 18 months uh, and suffered terribly during that time. Um, he finally was released in a prisoner's exchange, but his father had very little to do with that and eventually went back to England. And this had to really hurt Ben Franklin, I mean, A, it's his son, and no matter what kind of jealousies might have existed to watch this befall, this kind of plight befall your son, had to be difficult. Moreover, he's a very public figure, and it wasn't as if his son was some wallflower. He was a governor who was now in jail. How did he handle that? Well, Franklin said nothing had ever hurt him so bad in his entire life, and you have to believe that. And there was a lot of public criticism of him for not uh, for not helping his son out. But remember, he was the minister plenipotentiary to France, and could not be seen as being in collusion with uh, you know with a Tory. And so he was in a horrible. It's really a tragic situation, uh, which really is kind of like the um, uh, the Revolutionary War in microcosm. And do you think he really understood his son's hardship? I don't. No, I don't really think. I think the the part of the tragedy of the book and what I finally end up saying in the end is that these were two men who could never reconcile, although the son wanted to, William wanted to more than his father did. They could never reconcile because they they just did not understand each other. And these were two very intelligent men. So it shows you just how extreme uh, this break between father and son can be when it happens. Yep, and, and in the end, the, the father didn't understand the son, but the son didn't understand the dad either. I don't think so. I don't. Part of the, what, what we haven't spoken about is that at the end of the war, William became a counter-revolutionary, a violent counter-revolutionary, and uh, this his father could not, could not ever forgive. And indeed he couldn't. And by the way, father-son stories, well, they're riveting always drawing everyone in. I mean, this is how Arthur Miller made his living, telling father-son stories. Heck, it's, it's how Bruce Springsteen's made his. And this is as good and as harrowing a father-son story as I've ever read. Daniel Mark Epstein, The Loyal Son, The War in Franklin's House. Thanks so much for joining us. 
Thank you. It was a pleasure. And, you know, we love to do these stories about history. And as always, so often, we bring you this days in history by Hillsdale College. But stories like this are always brought to us by the fine folks at Hillsdale, too. And, my goodness, one of the things I had forgotten to ask uh, Daniel was what the similarities were today to then. Uh, And in large measure, that populist movement of the revolutionaries, well, it came about because they had been felt like they'd been governed by a foreign and far-off power. And that's, of course, the British crown. And in large measure today, a lot of the populist movement, many people believe, is because there's a far-off power called Washington, D.C. And many people in this country feel like that foreign power or that far-away power isn't responsive to their needs and to their lives. Again, as always, these stories, the stories about American history, are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale can get to you. Go to hillsdale.edu. And folks, they have terrific, terrific online courses there on everything. And the one I'd most highly recommend to start things out is the Constitution 101, because it digs in and drills down on the founding fathers and what they were after as they created the most important document in world history. And many people believe that. It's not just us saying it. We don't have a lot of opinions here in the show. We just tell stories. And one of the stories coming up, we'll be doing a a long-form series on the Constitution and how it came to be. But go to hillsdale.edu. That's hillsdale.edu. And again, The Loyal Son is the book, The War in Franklin's House. And we learn in this story that there was a civil war in this country long before the Civil War. And it had started off with just a small minority of Americans wanting to fight the revolution. But ultimately, many more joined, many resisted, and again, many, well, they just hid, hoping it would all pass. And this story of Ben Franklin and his son, and his son being in, imagine this, solitary confinement for 18 months with bread and water. The most famous of the founding fathers, but for George Washington, and his son rotting in jail. What a story. Ben Franklin's story, his son's story. Here on Our American Stories. And this is Our American Stories, and we love bringing people on from all walks of life on the show. And we tell stories about everything from sports to history to the arts. And, of course, family, kids, and what we do about raising kids in a country and in a society where it's just getting harder every day with all of the threats and all of the things coming at our kids and at us. And joining us to talk about one subject that we like to hit on, and that's the subject of resilience and or grit is a clinical psychologist at the University of Virginia, my alma mater. I went to law school there, and Alex is too. And also author of the book Supernormal, The Untold Story of Adversity and Resilience. I always like starting off with a quote before joining uh, with a guest. And one of the quotes that struck me from the Wall Street Journal essay, poet Dylan Thomas once said, quote, there's only one thing that's worse 
than having an unhappy childhood, and that's having a too happy childhood. You then went on to write, the author did, I don't know if this is true, but I do know that too many men and women feel lesser somehow because of the adversities they have grown up with, imagining they would be happier or more successful people if they had enjoyed stress-free upbringings. This isn't necessarily the case. And Dr. Meg Jay, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here, Lee. You bet. What got you interested in this question in your line of work? Was it the work? Was it because you were a parent? Was there some combination of both? You know, it, it was definitely the work. So I'm a clinical psychologist, and, you know, most of my days, every day, I spend behind closed doors talking to people, usually one at a time. And what I was finding was, was that my practice, I'm in private practice, and I had so many clients who were successful people who had stories that many people around them didn't know about of the things they'd grown up with, whether that was alcoholism in the home or having a mentally ill parent or an abusive sibling. And so really what they were telling me day in and day out were stories of adversity and resilience. But what I noticed was that when I would ask clients, do you consider yourself to be resilient? Usually they would say, no, if I was resilient, I wouldn't need you. I wouldn't be here. And that made me realize that we needed to have a bigger conversation about what resilience is, that people aren't, you know, that more people are resilient maybe than they realize and that they're not as alone as they think there are. Most of the people I would see would say no one would understand what I'm going through or my friends wouldn't understand it. But I knew that there were many people out there who were telling me similar stories. Much of your research and lecturing centers on this question, quote, does early hardship in life keep children from becoming successful adults? D- drill down on that, because you, you said you talked to a, a bunch of folks, but I guess those anecdotal stories led you to a deeper dive. Right. So, I mean, you know, what we know, of course, I mean, if you look at the data growing up with adversity, well, it's for one, it's far more common than we would maybe like to believe. So, Again, whether it's substance abuse in the home or domestic violence in the home or bullying or, you know, sexual assault, um, you know, if you look at each of those individually, they just affect a minority of the population. But if you look at them collectively as childhood adversity, things you might struggle with before the age of 20, you will maybe be stunned to hear that 75% of adults grew up with one of these or more. And we also know that growing up with chronic stress puts us at risk for all kinds of negative outcomes, whether that's underemployment or, um, you know, less education than we might have achieved, mental health problems, physical problems, substance abuse, you name it. Yet, we also know that many people go out there and they beat those odds, they beat those expectations, and they do better And they themselves say, you know, I I did better in life than maybe I would have if I hadn't grown up with that pressure to sort of get out, to do life different, to do life better. So, I mean, of course, we know that adversity does not equal success, you know, puts you at risk for not meeting your potential. But for some people, they're able to say, I've got to improve my situation and failure is not an option. Indeed, I think what you're proving is it's not dispositive. And indeed, many, many people not only overcome the adversity, but maybe that adversity had something to do with who they are today. Tell us a little bit about the history of research into this subject and into childhood hardship, especially the work by Victor and Mildred Gertz. 
Yeah, so this is interesting. So the Gertzels the looked at, um, they went through encyclopedias and, you know, looked at people who were in the encyclopedia for having achieved or, you know, done great things with their lives. And what they found, which surprised people at the time, um, this was research was in about the 60s, I believe, was that, you know, nearly three quarters of them had grown up with some significant hardship. And based on what I just told you, that's not, it's maybe not as shocking now as it was then of that, you know, growing up with adversity is incredibly common. But what it does tell us is that you're not doomed because you've grown up with adversity, that for some people, it's going to propel you to be more purposeful, to look for work that's more meaningful, to be more driven, because, you know, kind of skating through life isn't an option that, you know, staying where you are isn't a possibility that people feel like I've got to get up, I've got to get out and I have to do things maybe to help people in ways that I wish that I'd been helped. I've seen some of the struggle in the world and I want to do something about it. And and what degree do you talk about economic hardship too? Because I think that creates stresses in a family too. Sometimes you may have families who aren't alcohol dependent or other of these things or sexual problems uh, or sexual abuse. But my goodness, economic hardship can be a hardship all by itself, too. Of course. Uh, that is definitely in the book, and that is one of the um, you know, common childhood adversities that people face. And it, you know, like you're saying, econom- economic hardship can lead to then other things such as alcoholism or, you know, and then alcoholism often leads to domestic violence. So one thing can pile up on another and another. But What's interesting is that the research has found, actually the biggest study done on childhood adversity was the the ACEs study um, done in California, and it was on 17,000 middle-class families, and two-thirds of those families also experienced, you know, one of these hardships. So what's interesting about childhood adversity is that it really cuts across, you know, race, class, gender, but of course struggling financially certainly puts you at risk for a number of additional adversities. Indeed. Let's talk about this word resilience then, because it's often used to mean bouncing back from short-term problems, but that's not the real issue. True resilience is more of an ongoing battle against recurring threats to safety and well-being. Uh, dig, dig down on that, if you could. Right. Well, yeah, well, that was really, you know, my agent actually told me several years ago don't write a book unless you can't not write it, meaning that it's it's such a long, arduous process that unless you feel like you can't go to bed at night without, you know, getting this message out, just don't, don't try to do it. And so this is, you know, Supernormal was a book like that for me, whereas I felt like we really need to change the way we think about resilience, or at least change the way we think about the different types of resilience. So sure, short-term things like Yes, we bounce back from the flu. Maybe we bounce back from losing a job. You know, maybe we bounce back from, you know, some kind of time-limited adversity. But the common childhood adversities that we've been talking about, these are what are called cumulative adversities or chronic stressors, and that having an alcoholic parent is not a problem for one weekend. Right. It's a problem that affects a child day after day, week after week, year after year. So there is no bouncing back. And I think there's this real misconception that resilient people have bounced back from adversities like they're not affected, like they just, 
like, you know, remember the old Mr. Magoo cartoons, you know, like they're just driving through and rocks are crashing down and they don't even notice. But if you listen to the way that my clients or others, you know, in, in public sphere talk about getting through and transcending hard times early on, they never say I bounced back. Usually what you hear them say is, I fought back, I'm a scrapper, I'm a survivor, I wasn't going to let this defeat me. And so really what's underneath resilience is not a bouncing back, um, especially for these long-term problems. It's, it's a battling back. It's, it's fighting for something better than what you have. And it sounds like a more lo- longer-term solution anyway, and uh, it deals actually with the real-life consequences of these things because those consequences stay forever. When we come back, we're going to talk more with Dr. Meg Jay. The book is Supernormal, The Untold Story of Adversity and Resilience. Habib, and this is Our American Stories. We return with our conversation with Dr. Meg Jay. Her book, Supernormal, The Untold Story of Adversity and Resilience. Read it. It's at Amazon.com. Order it. We'll put it up on our website. And share the link of our interview. Go to OurAmericanNetwork.org and share it with friends. If you're a parent, this is definitely worth reading. And heck, if you're a human being, it's worth reading. Meg, we had uh, Mark Cuban on, and he told us something about his worries with his kids, he's very affluent. He had to overcome economic adversities in his life and get through them, as we might say. I think that's what he said, is he got through it. Um, right. But he said that he worried, his chief worry with his kids is that they weren't going to have to endure much of any kind of adversity and that that may be a disadvantage for his kids. Talk about right. that. Well, that goes back to the Dylan Thomas quote you read earlier about, you know, there's only one thing worse than an unhappy childhood, and that's a too happy childhood. And, you know, I don't want to be flip about it. I I wouldn't go prescribing trauma for people, but I I actually hear that question a lot. And, you know, my response is usually, again, you know, I don't suggest you make your kids sleep out in the rain, but if you feel like your kids aren't learning how to deal with difficulty or face challenges, then, you, you know, you might want to consider your parenting choices. And, you know, for some kids, their challenge is going to be, hey, I'm on the crew team and my parents can't protect me from how hard that is. Like, it's tough to get up every morning and go to crew practice. Like, that's practice for, you know, adversity down the line, too. Um, or, you know, an example I gave in a talk I gave recently, someone said, something like that. And I said, well, you know, look around and see if you're really requiring your kids to do all the chores that maybe they could do. So for example, you know, I know these days it doesn't make a lot of sense for people to own a lawnmower when you can, you know, pay someone to come cut your grass once a week. But at our house, we actually have, so we don't have a lawnmower. Someone cuts the grass, but I actually make sure that it's my kids who rake the leaves every year, partly so they realize how much work that is. And um, they, you know, get something out of getting all those bags together and earning money. And, you know, I think there's ways that we can look at the lives that our children have and say, am I doing more for my kids than I really ought to be? Am I cooking for them or am I teaching them to cook? You know, am I, is the world just being taken care of for them or are they things they can do to learn how to be 
you know, resilient, functional, productive humans so that, you know, when they're out of the house, they know kind of how to stand on their own two feet and, and how to, you know, get up when life knocks them down. Indeed, because resiliency doesn't spring from nothing. I mean, in, in the end, resiliency is an attribute uh, that's almost taught and, le- and learned through, through struggle. Experience. Through experience. Absolutely. Right. So I often have that kind of that Mark Cuban question. People will say, well, my kids have no adversity. How can I teach them to be resilient? And I say, well, you, you can't. I mean, this isn't like some, an elixir you could buy at the drugstore. It's not a personality quality that you're born with or that you could cultivate without experience. But again, the challenge may be mastering the piano or rowing on the crew team, like I said. And again, these might not seem like adversities, but these are hard things to do, you know, day in and day out to stick with, even when you don't want to. And then we translate that you know, later on, if, you know, the adversity is something significant. So maybe we have charmed childhoods, although that's less common than people think it is. Yeah. Um, so, you know, you might have an affluent household, but maybe one of the parents drinks too much. Yep. Um, or you might have an affluent household, but maybe one of the siblings has mental illness. So I, I think affluent parents tend to want to believe that their kids' lives are more charmed than they are sometimes. But, um, you know, oftentimes I think about, and I, I, you know, I'm not throwing stones because I think no parent is a perfect parent, but with my kids I try to think about what can I teach them instead of what can I do for them, what can I teach them so that they can do these things for themselves by the time they're, you know, 18 or 20. Indeed, and I think that's what so many parents are thinking about right now, is how do I make self-reliant, resilient children? Um, because that's our, in the end, that's our jobs, and we sort of know it. Let's talk about stories. Um, one man, an officer in the military who came to you for a consultation, uh, talked about some bullying that he had experienced as a child and a teen. Talk about that particular story. Yeah, um, so this guy, um, it, it was a great great story and that's why you know I put it in super normal and I talked about him a little bit in the Wall Street Journal piece you mentioned but he was bullied this is a great example he was from an affluent family um, but you know affluent families can't protect their kids from being bullied at school necessarily so um, he was bullied um, you know pretty badly for a long an extended period of time this wasn't like one or two years he was in one of these smaller private schools where, you know, the cohorts don't really change. So he was sort of stuck with this group of kids all the way through middle school and high school. And so um, this wasn't a situation that he could just bounce back from. It wasn't a one-year thing. It was something that he really had to sort of, like Mark Cuban said, get through and just dig in and survive. And so one way he did that was he found something outside of school where he felt he could excel and be appreciated. That was judo for him. Um, So that really kind of helped him channel the fighter within. And there was no, you know, Hollywood ending where at the end of the day he takes on the bullies and is the homecoming king. There was none of that. There was just this, I'm not going to let this defeat me. And one thing I really appreciated about the way he talked about it was that he really owned his anger that he said, you know, I asked him, you know, how did you put up with that year after year and just not, you know, give in or collapse? And he said, I got angry that I just resisted. I refused to accept that what those kids said about me was true and I wasn't going to let them win in the long run. And I don't think we talk enough or maybe like right now, 
with our current climate, we do hear a lot about sort of resisting or digging in and, you know, standing up for yourself, but that is often a part of resilience. It's not just bouncing back. It's about almost a healthy use of anger or just refusal to accept, you know, an abusive or, you know, a bad situation and say, I'm going to fight my way out of this in a healthy way. Yeah, one woman who made her way out of an abusive childhood said, and I'm quoting from the uh, Wall Street Journal piece, I am a fighter, I am determined, I will survive, I give it 100% before I give up, and I will never lose hope. Um, talk about that kind of, you, I assume you ran up against that or across that kind of internal uh, encouraging, because it takes an encourager outside, and often it takes your own, your own sense of encouragement to get through these things. Talk about both. Do these people have outside encouragers? who end up, or mentors who help them, and how much of it is internal? You know, it's both. And, you know, people often say, what's the, what's the magic quality? What is the thing? And, you know, there isn't one thing, which is actually good news, because that means it's not like you're either born with it or you're not. But if I had to say one sort of quality or frame of mind that you often hear from resilient people, whether it's the, the man we were just mentioned who was bullied growing up or this woman um, who got out of her situation, they often, they have that sort of fighting spirit. And that's why I, you know, I went with super normal and they're sort of a super heroic metaphor in the book of that they're fighters at heart and they don't accept the situations that they're in. And there's actually a really cool study that I talked about in the book and in the Wall Street Journal article about uh, former uh, prisoners of war in East Germany who were held captive for, you know, two or three years and about two-thirds of them down the line after they were released struggled with PTSD, and about a third did not. And the difference that they found amongst the two groups wasn't the treatment they received. They all had sort of equally horrible treatment, but it was the degree to which they resisted from the inside. So there was nothing they could do to improve their situation on the outside at that time, kind of like the kid we're talking about who was bullied. He couldn't change his school. These kids I mean, these prisoners couldn't get out of prison, but on the inside, they said, I refuse to be defeated, um, that they decided this wasn't going to ruin their lives. They were going to make it out and they were going to go on. And um, that those people who had that sort of inner fighter when they were released kind of fared better down the line. And you see a little bit of that going on. I think some of the, you know, post Parkland shooting the student saying, hey, I'm going to stand up, I'm going to do something, you know, I'm not just going to be a victim or a sitting duck here. Um, I mean, we do know that helps people in terms of recovery to feel like they're not victims, but that they're protagonists in their own story. Yeah, it's very important. And coping with stress, uh, you, you sort of indicate, is like an exercise, and we become stronger with practice. Uh, there's also yeah. an indication that we should all take on long-form projects that feel like challenges rather than threats. Uh, talk about that. Yeah, so that's sort of back to the, you know, crew or judo or an instrument. And um, my kids were joking the other day that I need to get going on another book because I'm, you know, like practicing on the piano all the time. <laughs> I've always <laughs> got to have some long-form project that I'm going for. But, you know, these are ways that we can, you know, if you feel like, hey, I want to strengthen my resolve a bit, um, that this is the way you do it. You know, you decide you're going to do a 5K. You decide you're going to learn, 
you know, three pieces on the piano. You just pick something. It's not easy, and you stick with it. And that may sound, you know, like like nothing big, but it is, you know, coping with difficulty and with stress. You know, it is like a muscle, and the more you do it, you know, the better you get at it. Most resilient people would say stressors or difficulties come their way. They're like, yeah, I've been here before. I'll get through it. This isn't my first rodeo. And um, it doesn't mean that it's easy or that they bounce back. I'm saying it's actually super hard work, and we don't hear that enough. But you do get stronger, and you do get better at it over time. Indeed. And we've been talking to Dr. Meg Jay. Her book, Supernormal, The Untold Story of Adversity and Resilience. And I'm jealous. She's in one of the most beautiful college towns in America, Charlottesville. We're recording from one of the most beautiful college towns in America, too, Oxford, Mississippi. And thank you, Meg, for joining us. Thank you so much, Lee. You bet. This is Our American Stories, and you're listening to the, well, I guess it's called the theme or the soundtrack to Shark Tank. One of the shows we love covering here on Our American Stories. And someone asked us one day, why do you do Shark Tank? Well, I always love saying back to people, why not? But there's a story behind why we do Shark Tank. And I think there's a story behind why we focus on Judge Judy. And first of all, there are real stories on Shark Tank. I mean, what's beautiful about this show is that people come on, you know who they are, and then they pitch an idea, they tell a story about a product. And then these six very wealthy people who used to not be wealthy are going to decide whether they invest in this person who's aspiring to be like those very panelists, the Sharks, by ultimately growing their company. And they're asking both for the Sharks' capital and for the Sharks' knowledge. And so I think part of the reason we do this segment is because, in the end, there are some serious things going on underneath the radar of Shark Tank. And that is, I think it's the, and we all think it's the epitome of the American dream. I mean, let me tell you what you don't see. You don't see any discrimination on Shark Tank. A surfer dude can walk in with flip-flops and he can be from who knows where. And if he's got a good idea, he's got the shark's attention. A young inner-city kid can walk in. Bad idea? Damon John, who's African-American, is saying, Hey, kid, you didn't work through it enough. Go home. And so this is what makes Shark Tank what I consider egalitarian. It's also aspirational. The people on this show... Don't apologize for wanting to be wealthy. They, they do. And Americans want to be wealthy. And the wealthy people on that stage used to not be wealthy. They are. And they don't apologize for their wealth. And by the way, what are they doing with their wealth? They're trying to make other people wealthy. By the way, this is the story of capitalism that is never told in colleges, in grade school. So we actually think it's a mini economics course, but it's a heck of a lot of fun. And so before we dig into why we really think it's fun, and that is the star-studded cast of Shark Tank and how different all these people are and from all different walks of life, and we're going to, over the next hour, walk you through the lives of Barbara Corcoran and Mark Cuban. Who were these people? How did they get to be who they were? But before we do that, we want to walk you through what we love about Shark Tank, some of the pitches. Let's talk about the silly ones first. This particular pitch combined... Two problems and one really weird solution. I'm a board-certified urologist, and I have a successful practice in South Florida. Many of my male patients have two things in common. Number one, well, they urinate a lot. 
And number two, <laughs> they love to play golf. And if you've been on a golf oh, no. course, I won't have to convince you that the trees are sparse and the bathrooms are almost non-existent. That's why my patients encourage me to design and produce the Euro Club. Uh -oh. I can't wait. I see where this is going. This is a trademark patent pending product that functions as a self-contained receptacle. Exactly. Now, the Sharks never really warmed up to this one and never really took the club by the hand, so to speak. But this guy was convinced he was on to the next revolutionary idea in golf and leisure sports and maybe even something for a fisherman, maybe a, a Europole down the road. Who knows? And next, we have a, a silly pitch. And well, let's just say this might just give Jackson Pollock a run for his money. There is an economy for stupid and I am overflowing with it. Now, with their universal appeal, my cat drawings are poised to be the next pet rock. I charge people $9.95 for my cat drawings. $9.32 of that is, is profit. And let's just say that one went straight down the toilet. Um, no money, no takers. Into the litter box. Into the litter box that one went. But let's look at a good one. John and Alex Torrey have a new startup fashion brand, and they move back into their parents' house to share a room just to make it work. I'm Jonathan Torrey, and I'm his brother, Alex Torrey, and we live in Athens, Georgia. Okay, let's try the guacamole. We come from a super tight-knit Mexican family, so it's no surprise that we have a business together and the whole family pitches in. Can I help? We've developed a unique fashion brand called Umanf. We know that clothing is a really great way to express your creativity, and we want to build a fashion brand that has a really positive social impact. Pops. Can you make sure we order some more ink? Jonathan and I put everything into Umano. We moved back home with our parents. We share a room like we did when we were seven years old. We did that willingly because we really believe that Umano has tremendous potential. And they're asking them for $150,000 for 15% of their company. We're seeking $150,000 for 15% equity in our business. Umano is fashion for good. We design men's and women's elevated fashion basics with a personalized meaning to connect people to a bigger purpose. The awesome artwork you see here is curated from some of the most amazing up-and-coming artists. Kids! Sharks, meet Jessica. She drew the skull and wants to be a teacher. How old is she? She's seven. <laughs> Wearing Umano is a badge of pride, and it's a pledge, because with every product you purchase, Umano will give a backpack full of school supplies to empower young creative minds. So always, what are the margins? What are the sales? The t-shirt is $48. Yes, Walk me how much you pay for it and then how much the gift bag mm -hmm. costs that goes back. Retail, $48. Okay. The cost of the product, $7. The backpack and school supplies is $4. So we load up total at 11. We have a 48% margin. Plus, last year we sold $106,000. This year we're scheduled to close at $250,000. And Mr. Wonderful worried about whether this would violate child labor laws, but in the end, we got to the inner out. Robert? I see a lot of risk. I'm out. Thank you very Thank much. You. Yeah. It's embryonic. It's not me. I'm out. Thank you very Thank much. You. Robert and Mr. Wonderful were out. What about Lori, Damon, and Cuban? I'm going to give you $150,000 but for 25%. I would have to offer the 150K for 33 and a third. Thank you very much for your offer. 
It's between Cuban and Laurie or Damon. Who in the end gets the deal? Damon, we, we really thank you for your offer. We need to be able to protect some of that equity so that we can raise more money in the future. We would love to make a deal with Mark oh. and So we have a deal? We, we have, have a deal. deal. Done. Awesome. I can't wait to see you in the skull. Oh, yeah. my God. I love it. I love it. Oh, my God. Through our journey, we've probably heard a hundred no's to one 100, yes. A hundred thousand no's. So these yeses really help not only build our own confidence, but also the teams that we are on the right track. And that's what we love about Shark Tank. And when we come back, Barbara Corcoran, Lori Grenier, Mark Cuban, the whole staff, the whole cast, we're going to dig into their lives, how they got where they got. We're spending some time on Shark Tank here. Why we spend so much time on it, you'll soon find out. More after these messages. This is Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories. We continue our story of why we do Shark Tank, why we spend time on it. And now you're going to find out why. You know, those sharks all started out with nothing and needed the help of other sharks, other investors, so they could grow wealth. And now they're the wealthy ones sitting in the leather chairs. And you just heard this Mexican family, these young guys moving back into their family's house to pitch these sharks so they could grow their business. What a beautiful story. That's everything you want to know about America. So let's look at the cast, because this cast is America. And it has a couple of Canadians on it. First up, Barbara Corcoran, because boy, what a life story she has. She was the second oldest of 10 kids and grew up in a lower middle class New Jersey town. Let's take a listen. So I grew up in a very little town named Edgewater, New Jersey, which if you were there in the town, it's right on the Hudson River. And we look at New York City skyline right from our house. My little bedroom with my five sisters, we all looked out the window and we saw New York City. We never went there, but we saw it. My mother raised her 10 children. She had six girls in the girls' room, four boys in the boys' room. The girls' room was pink, the boys' room was blue. And we had one bath in between, but miraculously, my mother and father produced every one of those children from their bedroom, which was the living room couch. So for romance. (laughs) They were devout Catholics. (laughs) I didn't even have to tell you that one, right? No, you didn't. And here she is talking about a moment and a man that changed her life. I was 23 working at the Fort Lee Diner. I was in charge of one whole counter, and I, another woman was in charge of the other counter. The night that Ramon Simone walked in, an accent, both words, Ramon Simone. I took one look at him walking in with his beautiful dark skin, his aviator shades. He had a real suit on. I had never seen a man in a suit, not in my neck of the woods. A press collar, a white press collar. I looked at him and I knew I was going to be losing my virginity within a week. (laughs) And you know what, it was weird because it wasn't like I was saving it for anybody. It's that nobody had ever asked me for it. But he walked in, whoa! Ramon offered me a ride home. He had a big fancy car with Real leather seats. I'd never sat on leather before. I thought he had sprinkled them with talcum powder. I was sliding around. He gave me a ride home. I introduced him to my family. They hated him on sight. And all my mother said as we started dating is, I don't like this man. I can't imagine why a man 10 years older than you would be asking a young girl out. 
Well, within one short month, Ramon Simone announced that a good girl like me, a smart girl like me, should really be living in the big city, and he offered to pay for a week at the Barbizon Hotel for Women, which was a block away from Bloomingdale's in New York City. I couldn't believe I was going to New York City. I announced to my mother I was leaving. I broke her heart. My last memory of her was her crying and holding on to me, and I popped into Ramon's leather seats, and off we went to New York City. And by the way, if you remember when we did our hour on Frank Sinatra, the kid from Hoboken, New Jersey, which is right next to Edgewater, he could see New York City, but he didn't think he belonged there. And that stuck with Sinatra for a long time. Well, next comes a real big moment in Barbara Corcoran's life, a real hard breakup and a real tough loss. And then Ramon and I decided that we would start the real estate company. He said, you'd be great at real estate sales. I quit my job as a receptionist for a development company where I was answering the phone, Chifuni Brothers, Chifuni Brothers, Chifuni Brothers, a hundred million times a day. And he gave me the wonderful thousand dollars. He took 51% of the partnership. After all, he said he was the financing partner. I was a working partner. I took 49%. And so for the next seven years, we built a little rental company in New York City in a sublease space, and we had 14 rental agents. I was earning more money, not much more, but more money than I had been earning as a receptionist. I felt so successful. His two girls, pardon me, his three girls, I didn't know he had children for two years, but anyway, then he had three (laughs) girls. They moved in with us. I was now living with him in sin, as my mother liked to tell her neighbor. She wouldn't talk to me until I got rid of the boyfriend. That took seven years, all right? right. But I was dumping the pasta one night into the sink, and all of a sudden, Raymond Simone walks in, and he says, you know, Barbara, we have something serious to discuss. I'm going to marry your secretary. like, Tina? She went from Tina, the wonderful secretary, I wouldn't even put a label on her. Okay? I just couldn't believe my ears or my eyes. I'm like, what? How's that possible? He said, take your time moving out. I took about a minute, <clears throat> grabbed a toothbrush, and walked out the door and moved in with my girlfriend, Kathy, who was living on East 79th Street in the studio, and she let me stay there until I got my feet back under me. I should say that for the first time in my life, I don't know what hit me. I guess that hit me. But I can't believe I managed it so badly. I felt like I was a nobody. I went from a somebody with a successful business to a nobody because I was turned out for a younger woman. Tina was five years younger than me. I had to admit she was prettier. She had real blonde hair. I was already highlighting. (laughs) I hated her for that. She was calm and pretty. I hated her. (laughs) But I went to work every day. I wanted to fire Tina, but Ray reminded me he was the controlling partner. I couldn't do that. Tina moved into my desk in Ray's office where I used to sit, and I sat out with the salespeople, and every day I went in smiling like a puppet, but in my heart I was running around a broken heart and loss of confidence. I just thought to myself, my God, I was nothing before Ray found me. He picked me up, found me. He was my mentor. He gave me confidence. He gave me the money to start the business. Everything good that had changed my life all led to one place, which was Ramon Simone. And I thought, he's right, I'll never succeed without him. But I can't even remember what clicked in my head, maybe desperation, but one day I just decided I'm not going to do this anymore. And I walked in and I said to Ramon Simone, you know what, I'm ending this business and here's how we're going to do it. We're going to chop up the 14 salespeople like a football draw. You can pick the first person, I'll pick the second. We'll do it fair. If you want to move out, you can move out. If you want me to move out, no problem. You want to keep the phone number, no problem. Or I'll get a new phone number, whatever. You go first. 
And we went right down the line. And I would say within maybe six minutes, we ended a partnership. Boom! Like that. We had $37,000 in cash. He wrote me a check for half the $37,000. And as luck would have it, it was a real estate recession we were just about to dive into. And why was it great? Because commercial space wasn't leasing well. He was on the eighth floor where my old office was. I rented the identical space on the 11th floor above him. There's a little ego in that, I'm sorry to say. How needy was I? And by Monday, this was on a Thursday, by Monday, I moved my salespeople in because in those times you could rent black desks, rent phones, bang, we're in operation, and my seven salespeople moved in, and that was the birth of the corporate group. Right before I left Ramon Simone's office that day, or I should say Ray and Tina's office that day, and by the way, you know what his real name was? It wasn't even Ramon Simone. I found out from his mother, Vicky. His real name was Ray Simon, and he wasn't from the best country, like he always told me. He was from 145th Street in Harlem. Go figure. Alrighty. Well, anyway, so right before I left the office, that's when Ray gave me the gift of a lifetime when he said to me those words that reflected in my head for the rest of my life. It still gets me going. You'll never succeed without me. I'm telling you, I don't believe in negative motivation. I'm a positive person like my mother. But he really knew my number. If he had said, I know you're going to be amazing, I'm sure I wouldn't have stayed in business in the tough times. But it was that scolding tattoo in my heart, you'll never succeed without me, that every time I was near death, growing my business through the ups and downs of the real estate recession, being overextended, being over leveraged, owing money, blah, 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 that same phrase got me going again. He gave me an insurance policy for success by insulting me. Thank God he did. And this is why we're not big fans of totally insulating your children or anybody from harm. This actually ended up being Regrettably, the worst and best thing that ever happened to Barbara Corcoran. And life happens that way. And here's Barbara Corcoran talking about a bias she exhibits when picking out certain contestants. And it's a bias towards people who either faced hard times or started with nothing. I'm very biased. They have a much better shot at succeeding. Why? A lot of reasons. Uh, They're more desirous. They've never had the fancy vacation, the delicious new car, the uh, the private schools, the higher education in many instances, and they aspire to it. Uh, so um, they get more satisfaction out of climbing that ladder and getting to it. Um, and uh, they've uh, seen their parents struggle uh, through life to give them whatever they've given them. They're more appreciative. They don't take things for granted. And you know what else, uh, which I should have started with? They're totally free from expectation. Hmm. Do you know how how lucky I was to never for a second ever think, I wonder what my parents think of this? Hmm. All it was was just let's see how far I could go. Yeah. I had nothing to lose and nowhere to go but up. Do you know how freeing that is to take risks? So they're, they're not risk aversive. And you strive harder. And there you have it, Barbara Corcoran, just one aspect, one star on this star-studded panel. So if you haven't watched Shark Tank, now you know why, but you ain't heard nothing yet. When we come back, Damon John's story, Mark Cuban's story, Robert Hershevik's story, and many more here on Our American Stories, the story of Shark Tank and why we cover it.
This is Our American Stories. We continue our story of why we like Shark Tank and why we spend time on Shark Tank. And it's because of all the stories on that set, the stories of the stars, the stories of all the people pitching their wares. And again, it's every walk of American life. And it's bankers and it's lawyers and it's surfer dudes and it's, it's black people and white people and straight people and gay people. But there's none of that. There's Republicans, there's Democrats, but you hear none of it. And it's one of the one places in America where people aren't pitching their ethnicity or their grievance. They're pitching their product. And you get no special treatment, no matter what your age, ethnicity, or anything else. The women don't get special treatment by the girl contestants. The boys don't get special treatment from the boys. Damon is tough on the black contestants. He is on the white ones. The whites are as tough on the white contestants as the black ones. It's just, well, it's what America is supposed to look like. A meritocracy. And it's wonderful. Let's talk about Mark Cuban. Since the age of 12, Mark has been a businessman selling garbage bags door to door. The seed was planted early on for what would eventually become long-term success. After graduating from Indiana University where he briefly owned the most popular bar in town, Mark moved to Dallas. After a dispute with an employer who wanted him to clean instead of closing an important sale, Mark created Microsolutions, a computer consulting service. He went on to later sell Microsolutions in 1990 to CompuServe. He's worth roughly $3.4 billion. Here's Mark Cuban reflecting on his early success. When I was about 12 years old, um, and I remember asking my dad to, um, I wanted new basketball shoes because I was a basketball junkie back then. He's like, well, your shoes work. If you want a new <laughs> pair of tennis shoes, you have to go out there and get a job. And I'm like, dad, I'm, I'm 12 years old. And it just so happens he was playing poker with his buddies. And one of his buddies was like, well, I got a job for you. I've got these garbage bags that we distribute. You can sell them door to door. I'm like, okay. And it was when I was selling them and realizing that I liked to sell and that I could sell and that I recognized that selling was, was about providing a service and creating value for people that I knew that I, I would, I literally back then, I knew that I could always succeed. Um, I mean, I remember I was 16, I think, when I, I started a stamp company and started going to, to stamp shows and trade shows and just working a little bit harder than other people and, and trading up from one stamp to the next. I remember one time I started with a quarter and bought a stamp and left with $50, thinking, hey, if I could do this, I could do anything. And, and it's not that everything worked. I failed a lot, but I never, ever felt like I, I wouldn't be able to work hard enough to succeed. I, I've always been passionate. Some people thought, you know, it's, a, it's more OCD than anything else, which I think is a, a great trait for an entrepreneur. Um, when I, you know, I mentioned the stamp business, I would stay up till three, four in the morning, even though I had to get up and go to school and read Lynn stamp news and Scott stamp journals and have them all memorized and, and use that to give myself an edge. Um, even when I was in college, um, I'd be in in the library reading business books and just looking for business biographies and just reading all I could about business. Um, when I had micro solutions and, you know, I started with no money. You know, I, I'd pull all-nighters in, in front of borrowed computers teaching myself software and, and how to program. Um, it, it's just I've always just really enjoyed just the, the competition of business. I think, you know, in, in the sports business, I'll talk to, to our players, <clears throat> and it'll be like, 
well, you guys compete for 48 minutes and you practice a couple hours and you work on your game independently a couple hours. But the ultimate sport is business because you have to compete with everybody. And you have to do a 24 by 7 by 365 days a year forever. And there's always somebody out there trying to kick your butt. There's always somebody who looks at your business and says, I can do that better. I have a better idea. And you're, you have to compete with that person. And all the while, you have to make your customers happy, your employees happy. It, it's, it's the competitive side of me that, and any entrepreneur that I think that, that has to drive you. And, and I think that carries over into the Mavericks. I, I want to win and, and I want to compete. And by the way, you see this all the time. When they turn down entrepreneurs, it's often because they have this great idea, but they haven't done the work. And particularly on the sales front, they haven't gotten the sales. And what I love when Mark Cuban instructs these people, he doesn't just kick them out of the tank with no money. He gives them advice, like go out there and get sales and come back. He calls those people, by the way, entrepreneurs. They want to be entrepreneurs, but they don't want to pay the price. They don't want to put in the work and the effort. By the way, his grandparents came to America with nothing but their name, Chabensky. They even lost that possession when the Russian Jewish family's name was changed at Ellis Island to a name Americans could more easily pronounce, Cuban. And by the way, his father was the son of an automobile upholsterer in a suburb of Pittsburgh. And he started thinking about being an entrepreneur when he was 12 and credits Ayn Rand's The Fountainhead for helping him formulate his philosophy of life. It was incredibly motivating to me, he told Forbes magazine. That book encouraged me to think as an individual, to take risks to reach my goals, and to take responsibility for my successes and my failures. And by the way, don't we wish that could be every kid, every American, having that philosophy of life? Would the country be better? And I think this is why we love Shark Tank. Let's listen to... Damon John's story, he spent his childhood in Queens, New York, raised with seven sisters and brothers by his single mom. In high school, he worked full-time as a part of a co-op program, which he credits with stoking his entrepreneurial spirit. After his high school graduation, he started a computer van service, but it was selling hats and clothing that would make Damon John his fortune. He got together with his friends. His mom mortgaged her house... And John started his own company. He held a full-time job at the local Red Lobster while doing all of this to make ends meet, working on the clothing business between shifts. That small business, FUBU, is now an apparel empire. He has a net worth of over $300 million. He was on with Rachel Ray and his mom to talk about an experience and experiences and lessons his mom, that single mom, taught. Her son. Let's take a my listen. My life is a is a series of beautiful women. It started with my mother. I have three daughters. You know, a great fiance. So, so I'm, I'm a product by of good beautiful girls. Women. Yeah. <laughs> what kind of son? What kind of son did you have here? What was he like growing up? Oh, Damon was a little mischievous, <laughs> and he was always figuring out ways he could make money. Well, he was always thinking outside the box. Legitimate ways right? he could make money. And legitimate ways he could make money. <laughs> That's a very important word. Man, it was that hard? <laughs> uh, plus, he was very responsible, very responsible, and always knew how to handle money. 
I, I love that, that mm-hmm. in an early age, you understood the value of a dollar. I didn't have much of it. Um, That's right. So, Can't you know, we had, we had to make it stretch. And I would, I, it would be an example of my mother. My mother would show me how, to, how I would learn by her examples. We didn't have much, and I would watch her do whatever she could. Work and I love how you talk about your quality of life. You never yeah. felt suffered, even though you were not financially uh, you know, doing super well. It never felt like that at home. You always felt special. And I always felt like special. You know, I, growing up now, knowing I was dyslexic and knowing that we were going through challenging times, but she would make me feel so loved and like there was nothing in the world that could stop whatever I was right. doing uh, as long as I listened to her. Uh, and then, uh, <laughs> you know, she sent me to a different city or a different place every single summer to widen my understanding Your of horizons, the world. Yeah. I went to Hawaii, right, uh, for one year. But think about it. She saved up for three years. It cost $100. I was on a 19 connecting flight wow. to Hawaii, <laughs> and I stayed with a friend of hers, but I went to Hawaii. And you got to see the world. Yeah. Do you think that's, what's the greatest lesson, if you, if you had to pick, what's the greatest lesson or, or motto or, or the essence of what your mom taught you? Uh, that I was always responsible for my actions. Um, yes. And she, listen, I got left back in seventh grade. The teacher said, hey, you can pass, because they knew I was acting up. My mother said, no, guarantee that he's going to be left back. Then she went and got a third job so that a babysitter could watch me so I <laughs> stay in the house and be punished the entire summer because I had to be responsible for my actions. That's a tough lesson, but see how well was, it, it Was it harder on you, wasn't it, Ma? It was hard on me because when you punish your child, you punish yourself. Yourself, yeah. Personal responsibility, hard work, sounds like America to me. When we come back, more on this all-American show, Shark Tank, after these messages. Our American Stories, our final segment in our hour-long celebration of Shark Tank, which is just all American entertainment. By the way, what we love is that the contestants are unapologetic about their ambitions, which is what makes Shark Tank so much fun. In an age when being wealthy merits an apology, or worse, is a social stigma, this show could even be called countercultural, because it celebrates the pursuit and the creation of wealth. A crazy idea. And by the way, what makes it addictive is that the self-made millionaires and billionaires we're profiling and sitting on that panel are no different than the contestants pitching them. Because only 10, 20, or 30 years ago, they were those very same people. They get it. Pitching their businesses to rich investors, struggling to acquire capital, struggling to acquire knowledge. And that's what's just so good about this show. Let's look at another one of the sharks. Lori Grenier. She started with one idea and turned it into a multi-million dollar international brand. She's now regarded as one of the most prolific inventors of retail products, having created over 500 and holds 120 U.S. and international patents. She is a Shark Tank three-time Emmy Award winner, and here she is talking about how she got her start. Many of you know me from Shark Tank, maybe. Some of you know me from QVC. So many of you will wonder, well, how did she get there? How did she create 500 products? How did she get 120 patents? Well, the answer is actually kind of simple. 
I had a great idea. I had no schooling in business. I had no entrepreneurship class or MBA. I just thought of one great idea. And then I had the passion and the drive to bring it to life. And the key words there, well, at least for us, no MBA. She had an idea, and the word she used was drive. And it takes a lot of drive. And again, another one of our themes here on the show, Entitlement Society, you know, raising our kids with too much, taking away their drive and their curiosity, by the way. Uh, We had a terrific segment the other day and a terrific story uh, in which we had the great Wayne Gretzky talking about hockey when he was young and how they just went out on the, on, the, on the ice and played. And they were curious and they messed around. And there were no parents driving Wayne Gretzky around in hockey leagues all over the place. And he said he learned all the magic and everything just playing a lot with the friends nearby and having fun on the ice. And so a lot of these themes we come back to again and again. Let's talk about another character. And this one's a great one. Robert Hershevik, born in Croatia. He fled to communist Yugoslavia with his family when he was eight, settling in Toronto. There, the family lived in a friend's basement for 18 months. And by the way, you're going to hear a lot more of this story. But you're getting a flavor for it already, aren't you? Again, all these contestants start with nothing. All of the sharks in the end started with nothing, too. Let's hear Robert and his life story. I was born in Croatia, which was a communist country when I was there called Yugoslavia. We had dirt floors and hay and no running water for a long time, but it never seemed bad because I was a little kid, my grandmother, lots of family, dogs, cats, horses. You never know the situation you grow up in until you compare it to something else. Yugoslavia was a great country if you were part of the Communist Party. My dad was very anti-communist and would say all kinds of bad things about communism. And he got thrown in jail 22 times. And the last time he got thrown in, he was told, if you come back, you will never return. He packed a suitcase, grabbed my mom and me, and he crossed the border to Italy, got on a boat, and came to Canada. In Yugoslavia, my dad was such a happy guy. He was a manager, and he was pretty up there. He was well-respected for what he did. And then he comes to Canada, and he's sweeping floors in the factory. He was never the same. I think I'm like every other kid. You never appreciate your parents um, until they're gone. And I just think how hard he worked to give me that opportunity. And I just feel such a need to justify that sacrifice. I had lots of dreams when I was growing up. I wanted to be a detective, a vet, a race car driver. I was so unfocused. My best friend went for this interview at a computer company. And I'm thinking, computers, who cares? Boring. Until he says, the starting salary is $30,000. I'm like, what? And he says, well, I didn't get the job. Here's the guy's number. Call him. That's how I got started in the computer business. The Herjavec Group is one of the world's largest cybersecurity companies. I'm really passionate about it because it feels like we do good. I really think the world is changing. The internet has a lot of good, but has a lot of potential bad. And by protecting companies, we're making the world a safer place. I think what makes me different than the other sharks is I'm an actual immigrant. I actually came here on a boat. That shapes a lot of how I think and who I am. 
people think today, oh, I can't get ahead, it's really hard. Yeah, damn right, it's really hard, and it should be hard. Entrepreneurship is the great equalizer. It's not about who your parents are, it's not about your color, it's not about your sex, it's not about your religion. You know, business doesn't really care. Business only cares about the value that you add. Indeed, it only cares about the value that you add. And by the way, what a story here. He was in his 20s and between jobs when a college roommate, as you just heard him talk about, told him about IBM mainframes and emulation boards. But here's what he didn't say. He was underqualified for that position, but talked his way into the role by offering to work for free for the first six months. While working for free... He did what Corcoran did. He waited tables at local restaurants. He ended up becoming a general manager of that computer company, left it to start his own business from the basement of his home, ended up selling his first business to AT&T for over $100 million. But he worked for free for six months at the company, and the company taught him what he needed to learn because he didn't know anything about computers, and that would be called an apprenticeship, folks. By the way, that's almost illegal right now in America. You got to go to some college and spend money. He didn't spend money. He worked for free. And then he had a part-time job. And some of this common sense stuff, I think, is going to start creeping back into this great country as we overemphasize pushing kids into college, saddling up with debt and no real skills, particularly grit, particularly just toughing it out. We're not giving them those skill sets. Last but not least, everyone's favorite character, love him or hate him. You either love him or you love to hate him. But the show is not the same without him. And that is, of course, Mr. Wonderful. How did Kevin O'Leary become Mr. Wonderful? Well, it started in, if you can believe it, Canada again. He was born in Montreal to an Irish father and a Lebanese mother. O'Leary's father died when he was young, and it was his stepfather and mother who shaped a lot of his life. His mom saved a third of each paycheck, putting the funds into a large-cap dividend-yielding stock and bond fund. Nobody knew how good of an investor she was until she died. But suffice it to say... Her son was impressed. But back when O'Leary was a kid, he seemed more into guitars than making money or building empires. All of that changed thanks to one job. I remember my very first job. It was at a place called Magoo Ice Cream Parlor in Ottawa, Canada. And it was incredibly traumatic for me. And it taught me a lesson that I've never forgotten. It ruled my life in business from that day on. It was my second day working there. And the owner had hired me to scoop ice cream. I was finishing work one day, and she said to me, get down on your knees and scrape the gum off the floor. And she looked at me like a witch. And I said, no. And she said, you're fired. Get out of my ice cream store. I didn't even know what fired meant. But within minutes, I was on my bicycle on my way home in utter shame, in shock that she had that kind of control over my life. It was stunning and powerful. I have never, ever in my life worked for someone again, ever. No one has ever had control over me, ever, and never will. I can't believe I'm so emotional. (laughs) And look what shapes our lives. Sometimes hardship or a bad experience changes everything. Here's O'Leary's stepfather, George Kenwady, and then O'Leary himself, taking us back to the start of the business that would eventually make O'Leary rich. Kevin always went when other people were afraid to tread. So he started his business from nothing. I mean, he had one product. He had two telephones in one little small place in Toronto. By the way, even though his nickname is Mr. Wonderful, as a comment on his not quite warm and fuzzy demeanor, O'Leary 
is a team player. And by the way, what we love most about Shark Tank, I think, is what it teaches about capital. Because the Sharks aren't just giving away their money. What we will see over and over again with the contestants is they want the right shark, the shark with the right knowledge. And in the end, that's what capital is. Capital is knowledge. And this is why in the end, we rarely get political on this show, and it isn't really political, but it's why socialism doesn't work. It doesn't create great knowledge pools. The government's on top of everything. There's no competition. There's no accidents. There's no stumbling. There's no yearning. There's no drive. There's no personal responsibility. There's no risk-taking. All the wonderful words you heard. And that's what makes Shark Tank so appealing. It's not overtly political. It's not. But in a way, it's deeply political. About individual freedom and risk-taking and personal responsibility. That's why this show is such a big hit. It's aspirational and it's inspirational. And it's egalitarian, too. And the star of the show is the dream, the American dream. Let's face it, and capitalism itself. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. The story behind why we spend so much time on Shark Tank. Well, our American Dreamers segment should give it a, uh, give it a clue. We spend a lot of time on the American dream. This is Lee Habib. Again, this is Our American Stories. Go to OurAmericanNetwork.org to listen to all that we do. 